Our Father, as we come to your word today, we ask for our daily bread, and we ask, Lord, that we would behold our deep, deep need for Christ in this text. Lord, give us sensitive hearts. Give us sensitive hearts that are broken for those around us. And use this text, Lord, to remind us of the reality of your judgment, your wrath, and the offer of salvation to anyone who will believe in Christ. So to that end, we commit ourselves as we study your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are going to be continuing our study in the book of Genesis today. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 33 today. Yes, we are actually going to be covering 17 verses. Now, you guys know, if anybody knows me, you know that I'm not incredibly tech savvy or anything, but I do know how to use Google. And so this last week I found a kind of cool website where you can put in a quote from a movie and it'll bring up all the movies that the line has been in. And so with that, with that in mind, uh, movie trivia time, um, what do the movies The Godfather, Casablanca, Robocop, Austin Powers, and Die Hard 2 have in common? You'll never guess. All these movies contain the line, do you know who I am? Has everybody heard that? Has everybody watched a movie where you've heard that line? You've probably watched 10 or 20 movies at least that have that line in it. It's been used actually in a total of 1,285 movies. So the handful that I gave you is just a, just a small drop in the bucket. But the question, do you know who I am? implies kind of a sense of entitlement, of, uh, of, of, of privilege, of a right that you have, and a respect that apparently isn't being given when the question is asked. Do you know who I am? But who would dare say that to God? Who would dare to approach God with such an attitude? God is certainly no respecter of persons. That is, He is perfectly just and He is holy and He is impartial in His judgments. But at the same time, here's the paradox, here's the tension. At the same time, while He is no respecter of persons, at the same time, God does show favor to His children. His children, those who are in Christ, have a connection with God. Those who are in Christ have a privilege with God that those who are not in Christ do not have. Now, there are a lot of benefits that we have as God's children, or if you prefer, as His friends. If you remember, this chapter is all about Abraham being a friend of God. But among the greatest privileges that we can enjoy in Christ is the privilege of knowing that our prayers and our petitions won't be ignored. They won't fall on deaf ears. They will be heard. That is not a privilege that those who are outside of Christ have. Their prayers fall on deaf ears. Abraham was a friend of God, and that's, that's the central theme of Genesis chapter 18. We're going to see it again as we continue in our study today. 
If you remember, Genesis 18 starts out with the Lord and two angels coming to visit Abraham in the heat of the day as Abraham is kind of hanging out in the shade by his tent, resting, and the Lord and two angels come up and and Abraham jumps to his feet and he runs to them to serve them humbly, eagerly, and generously. And after a meal was prepared and, and served to them, a conversation ensued in which the visitors asked where Sarah was, where Abraham's wife Sarah was. And it turned out that she was just on the other side of the tent, eavesdropping on the conversation. And the Lord reiterated His promise so that Sarah could hear it from His lips, that Abraham would have an offspring through Sarah. And what was Sarah's response? If you remember, she laughed. She laughed quietly. She laughed in the the silence of her heart. But she did laugh. The Lord knew. And the Lord rebuked her for it, but the Lord repeated the promise that Sarah would bear a child a year from that time. So she was rebuked, but God was merciful anyway. Our passage today is just going to pick up right where we left off last time. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. And what I hope for us to see today is that God not only allows us to come to Him with our prayers and petitions, but that He desires for us to come to Him with our prayers and petitions, even intercessory prayer as His people. Now, of course, one of the roles of Christ right now, at this moment, is an intercessor between us and the Father. He's now interceding on behalf of His people. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that Jesus is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Paul writes in Romans 8.34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Present tense. Present ongoing. He's still doing it. He's still interceding on behalf of His children. You might argue that His most famous prayer was His high priestly prayer, which you find in John chapter 17. And the whole chapter is an intercessory prayer on behalf of His people, on behalf of those whom the Father had given Him. And so with that said, I want us to start today, I want us to start this passage with an understanding that when we offer intercessory prayer on behalf of others, we are following the example that Christ set for us. And so we start with Genesis chapter 18, we'll look at verses 16 to 21 to start. We read, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what was promised, what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. 
So it just picks up where we left off last time. They finish up their meal. They have this conversation about Sarah having a, a child in a year of the promises is reiterated. And they get up to leave. The three visitors, the Lord and two angels, get up to leave. And in ancient Mesopotamian culture, the thing that a, a host would do to be, to be hospitable, to be a good host, was to have started the journey with his guests in order to make sure that they get going in the right direction because it can be dangerous if they're not going in the correct direction. And so Abraham starts off this journey with the guests as a means of honoring them and being hospitable. And immediately after they leave, we see the Lord ask kind of a, a rhetorical question. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And it's really interesting that he asks that because he answers it in the same sentence and in the same breath. So he's not trying to hide his plans from Abraham. In fact, he's making it clear that he has no intentions of keeping secrets from Abraham in terms of what he plans to do. He's going to let Abraham know what the plan is, and he tells us why he's going to reveal these things to Abraham. Why does he reveal this stuff to Abraham? Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him. For I have chosen him. God's sovereign election of Abraham is the basis for God's desire to reveal his will to Abraham. It's rooted in the doctrine of election and on God's plans to do a great work through Abraham. Now maybe you've never thought about it this way, but if you are in Christ, if you have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ... He desires to make His will known to you. He desires to make His plans and His purposes known to you. And you don't get that by some kind of mystical experience. I was looking at an article yesterday where somebody claimed that God uh, spoke to them through a pineapple. No, that is not where God reveals His plans or His purposes or His will. It's in His Word. His, his plans and His purposes and His will, it's all found in His Word. It's not found anywhere else. It's not found in some type of mystical, super spiritual, out-of-body experience. It is found by reading God's Word. And this is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that if we have the Bible, but we don't have the Holy Spirit, it's not going to make a lot of sense to us. It'll seem like foolishness to us because without the Holy Spirit shining a spiritual light on the text, causing the eyes of our hearts to see, we cannot see. Why not? Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians and he says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7-16. to He says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Why would they have not crucified Him if they understood the Word? Because it was God's plan and God's purpose to crucify God, and fallen man constantly stands against God. So if they knew that it was God's plan for Jesus to be crucified, for Him to die in the place of sinners, they would have done everything they could to prevent it. He continues, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thought of God except the Spirit of God. Now we, we being those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The reason, one of the reasons we have the Spirit is so that we can understand. He says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, he's not trying to make this airtight, logical argument that's going to be incredibly persuasive. That's, that's kind of the theme of chapter 2. Is he's, not, he's not fancying up his speech in order to, to convince people. He's trusting in the Holy Spirit to do that work because only the Holy Spirit can do it. Verse 14, he says, "...the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned." The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The whole point there being the Holy Spirit needs to illuminate the text for us. Who knows? Who who can comprehend? Who can fathom the depths of God's mind? Who can possibly understand the thoughts and the plans and the purposes and the will of God? Only God does. Can something finite, can something infinite be communicated in a finite way? It's impossible. So we have to understand that in order for us to understand the text, in order for us to understand God's will and and, and plans as revealed in Scripture, we must have the Spirit of God teaching these things to us. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, must impart these things to us. And that's something that we should never, ever take for granted. And if you really understand what an incredible privilege it is to have the Holy Spirit in you and helping you to understand the Word of God, that should only increase your appetite for studying Scripture. Consider the the words of Jesus on the night before His crucifixion. He said to the disciples, John chapter 15, verse 15, He said to them, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Everything that I've heard from the Father I have made known to you. Where? Not through some mystical experience, but through Scripture and through the words that Jesus spoke to them. And why? Isn't it ironic? If you look at verse 16, chapter 15, verse 16, why does Jesus reveal everything that the Father has told Him to His people? He says, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, in, whatever you ask the Father in My name, He may give to you. So the reason that He reveals... To his people, Jesus says, is because of the doctrine of election and God's plans for you as his people to bear fruit. Same thing he told Abraham. Abraham was God's friend, and thus God reveals his plans 
to Abraham. God had not only chose Abraham to be a friend, He had chosen Abraham to be a blessing. Just like He's chosen you to be a blessing to all the families, all the nations of the earth in Abraham's case. The ultimate fulfillment, of course, of God's covenant with Abraham was in the coming of Jesus Christ, who was Abraham's descendant through the line of Isaac. God's plan from eternity was to bless every nation of the earth, every family of the earth through Jesus Christ. And yet, God also has plans to punish the wicked, as we see in the words of the Lord here. Judgment is part of God's plan. Salvation is part of God's plan. Blessing is part of God's plan. But so is judgment. Part of the purpose of this passage is to show us, is to remind us of the reality of God's wrath. It's to to demonstrate the severity, the seriousness of God's wrath against sin. Now notice what the Lord says to Abraham. He doesn't say, Abraham, I am going over to Sodom and Gomorrah and I am going to destroy them in judgment. He doesn't say that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. No, instead the Lord reveals that the outcry and the seriousness of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are crying out to him. That it's great. And so the Lord reveals that his plan is to go to Sodom and Gomorrah to see it, to behold their sin, if, see if it's as bad as he's heard. Now you have to understand, that's a figure of speech. It's not that God has just heard about it and he, he, didn't, he didn't know about it. This is, a, this is a figure of speech. He knew exactly how bad the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. God never learns anything. God knows everything from eternity. God is neither ignorant nor indifferent towards sin, toward wickedness. You and I will we'll sometimes be indifferent towards sin and injustice. We'll sometimes, will often maybe, be ignorant of sin and injustice. But God is never, never unaware or ignorant of sin and injustice. Now, I want you to think about Sodom and Gomorrah for a moment. I want you to think about what a privileged people they were. They were a privileged people. Think about what they had seen. Think about what they had been through. They had witnessed. They had experienced the grace of God and the mercy and the power of God to rescue and redeem in a way that very, very few people in all of human history have. There was a war that took place and they were all taken captive. What did God do? He raised up Abraham to go and wage war against the kings and to lead them all back home. This was an impossible mission for Abraham. But he did it. And the only explanation, the only only way you could look at, at the impossible odds that he overcame was to accredit it to God. To attribute it to God. Not only that, but on a, on a lesser scale, maybe on a smaller scale, they also had Lot living among them. Now, we've seen that Lot isn't necessarily the most godly guy in the Bible uh, by any means, but Second Peter chapter 2, verses 7-8 to eight, tell us about how distressed, how upset he was at the levels of sin and debauchery and, and wickedness and depravity that he was surrounded by. 
So surely he had some kind of witness among them. If nothing else, he refused to participate in the sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were characterized by. And so, so great were the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord tells Abraham that their sins were crying out to him and that their sins were very grave. Abraham knew on a personal level. He knew that he was only deserving of God's wrath. He knew that in all truth and honesty, he was no better than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. The only difference between them and him was grace. Was God's grace working in him. He knew that if the Lord were to either deal on the spot with Abraham's sin or with the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, nobody could accuse God of injustice. It would have been perfectly just, perfectly righteous for God to either punish Abraham or Sodom and Gomorrah on the spot for their sin. So you have to understand that Abraham gets the point. He knows that if God's going to see their sin, He's not just going to walk away from it. He understands that it's bad. He knows what the Lord is setting out to do because He knows if the Lord lays His eyes upon such a depraved culture as the culture in Sodom and Gomorrah was, He would surely destroy them in judgment on the spot. So let's continue. Verses 22-33. to So the men turned from there. We read this. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose Thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten... I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So as the men come to this steep ravine overlooking the valley where tradition holds Sodom and Gomorrah to have been located, the two angels go on ahead. Abraham stops in front of the Lord. Almost as if to, to, to prevent him from going forward for just a moment, 
to speak personally with the Lord. Do you know what that's called? It's called prayer. We see in verse 23 that Abraham draws near to the Lord. That's exactly what you do when you pray. You draw near to the Lord. Why is Abraham drawing near to the Lord to pray? Out of concern for the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows what goes on over in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's clear that he knows that they are worthy of God's judgment on the spot. And so Abraham intercedes before the Lord on behalf of these people over in Sodom and Gomorrah. And in fact, this is the first example of intercessory prayer in the entire Bible. And if you think about it, if you, if you, if you have a picture of, of what's taking place here, you, you see what an incredible privilege, what, what an amazing honor it is to draw near to the Lord and to know that He welcomes, that He invites that he listens to our prayers and petitions. Now, Abraham's prayer gives us some very important principles for intercessory prayer. The first principle that we get here is that intercessory prayer needs to start with the nature of God. It doesn't start with what I want. It doesn't start with my will or who I am. It starts with the nature of God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God alone, God alone deserves all the glory just because of who He is. And that's the basis of Abraham's prayer. It's based on who God is. He says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You see what he's doing? He's he's appealing to God's justice because God is perfectly just. So his plea to the Lord is based on the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God. Abraham isn't asking the Lord to spare the cities because, well, Abraham's going to go in and clean it up. He'll take care of it. He's not asking, asking uh, God to, to spare them because, oh, the people over in Sodom and Gomorrah aren't, aren't really that bad. They're kind of nice once you get to know them. No, Abraham asks the Lord to spare the cities only because God is just. And it wouldn't be just for the wicked and the righteous to share the same fate. Now, of course, this is exactly what Moses would do later on when he would pray to the Lord on behalf of His people when God's wrath was burning against the Israelites after they had created this this golden calf and God is just going to destroy them all because of their idolatry. Moses stands before the people, or stands before God on behalf of the people and he says this, O Lord, why does Your wrath burn hot against Your people whom You have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. The point is, 
our prayers shouldn't be based on us. It shouldn't be based on who you are. It shouldn't be based on what you want. Prayers should be based on God's nature or on God's promise or on a warning that God has made somewhere in Scripture. Because if you don't have these things, what's the basis for your prayer? Or for your pleading with God? I fear that for many, prayer isn't all that different from their idea of sitting on Santa Claus's lap. And I'm including myself in that. It's easy to be selfish with our prayer. But Abraham's showing us that the glory of God needs to be the basis of our prayer. I was speaking with a young man earlier this week uh, about his future, and as we, as we closed the conversation, I prayed for him, and as I prayed for him, I reminded God that his word declares in James chapter 1, verse 5, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I was praying for wisdom for this young man because God has promised wisdom for anyone who asks. So what did I do? I took God up on his promise. I asked on behalf of this young man. Our prayers must start with the nature and the will of God. It must start with who he is, what he has promised, what he has declared his will to be. Because I can pray for a jet plane, a personal private jet, all day long. But God's word says nothing about that. So I can, I can waste a lot of time praying for that instead of praying for things that align with God's will as revealed in Scripture. And that would just be a waste of time. So first, prayer must be based on God's nature, His will, and His purposes as revealed in His Word. Secondly, God, uh, Abraham's prayer is humble before God. He doesn't approach God with an attitude of entitlement. In fact, you get the idea that he's kind of walking on eggshells with God. He doesn't just say, he doesn't just throw a number out there. He's like, I, I, I know that I don't have the right to be asking this. That's his attitude. I know I don't have the right to be asking this. He doesn't just treat God like he's talking to you know, just any old person. No, Abraham almost has a sense of fear and trepidation about daring to present these requests to the Lord. He knows that the Lord is under no obligation to listen to him, to give him his ear, to lend him his ear. He presumes absolutely nothing with the Lord. He, he's, he's delicate. He's humble with his prayer. It almost seems like, like he's afraid to ask as he intercedes before the Lord. But that's because he understands how unworthy he is of petitioning the Lord. So he avoids praying presumptuously. Ray Stedman, great preacher from yesteryear, he said this. He said, the prayer of presumption is discovering something we would like to do and then asking God to bless it. That kind of thing is doomed at the outset, end quote. So it's a prayer that's based on God's nature. Number two, it's a humble prayer. Number three, it's a modest prayer. It's a modest prayer. He's, he's not asking for a for something that's completely unrealistic. It's not like he's demanding to know things that God has chosen not to reveal, like to understand the doctrine of election. 
It's not like he's praying for something that was absolutely none of his business, that he had no vested interest in. No, this was something that he had a vested interest in. It was, it was kind of his business. His nephew is living over there. And fourth, he's persistent. He's persistent with his prayer. You know, as you read this, it's only a few verses. And so we can kind of just glaze over it in just a few seconds so quickly that you don't even need to blink. So you get the sense that Abraham, as, as he's walking so delicately through this prayer, you get the sense that he is being slow to make his requests known to the Lord. He, he intercedes a total of six times. Six times. He says, Lord, what if, what if you only find 50 righteous people there? Will you please spare the cities on behalf of the 50? And the Lord answers in the affirmative. And of course, the idea, I think, is that Abraham thinks for a second and he goes, I know there aren't 50 there. Okay, Lord, what about 45? If there are 45 righteous people there, will you, will you please spare those cities on behalf of the 45? And the Lord says, sure. I'll spare it if there are 45 there. And Abraham's still thinking. He's like, I'm a long way from a realistic number here. He knows there aren't 45. Okay, God, how about 30? How about 30? How, how about 20? How about 10? The stakes are just being raised higher and higher because he knows how impossible it will be for God to find that many righteous people there. And so with each number, Abraham, it's like he's ascending a staircase of God's mercy and it's just going to dizzying heights. So these are four very important principles of intercessory prayer. They must be pray, our, our prayers must be based on God's nature. They should be humble. They should be modest. And we must be persistent. And that last one might be the hardest. That last one really reveals how much we care about what we're asking for. It's also worth noting that all of this flows out of Abraham's heart. Abraham's concern that anyone, even wicked people, would fall under God's judgment. Now don't get me wrong, Abraham knew that apart from the grace of God, he was a wicked man as well. Abraham was a wicked man as well. And one mark of spiritual maturity is that you're more aware of and you're more concerned with your own sins than you are of the sins of others. But Abraham knows that the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And the Lord has told him that the sins of those cities have cried out to him. And so Abraham knows that the Lord, if he goes there, He's going to destroy those cities in judgment. Let me ask you, what would you have done if you were in Abraham's shoes here? What would you have prayed for? What would you have asked God for if you were able to stand before him on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, knowing how bad their sin was? And you have to understand that if you have repented, and place saving faith in Jesus Christ, you have the same privileges that Abraham did here. If you are in Christ, 
You have been given the ear of God. And it is all of grace. You have not earned it. You do not deserve it. But by grace, He's given it to you. He will hear you. So what would you have done? What would you have done if you were in Abraham's shoes here? Now, I think the easy thing to have done would have been to say, Lord, those people down there are so wicked. Go get them, God. Those people are so depraved. They have so disgusted me with their sin. They deserve your wrath, God. Please, go get them. They've deserved it for so long. Or maybe you'd take a different approach. And you'd say something like, Lord, you don't, you don't need to judge them. They're, they're really pretty nice people once you get to know them. When I read this passage, I can't help but think of how great a need there is, how desperate the need is for us to be praying for our culture. God would be perfectly just to judge our country, our culture, right now in a way that we would never recover from. I was reading a report the other day which indicated that the level of immorality in our culture is at an all-time high. As record percentages of people are now approving of things that 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, people considered to be immoral. The article notes, quote, These results are based on Gallup's annual values and beliefs poll conducted May, through 7th, uh, through 7th, May 3rd through 7th. Each year, Americans are asked to rate whether different practices are morally acceptable or morally wrong. And so here are some of the new highs that we've hit in terms of what Americans approve of. 73% of Americans now think that divorce is a morally acceptable option. 69% of Americans think that it is morally permissible for a man and woman to engage in sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Almost 70%. 63% of Americans approve of homosexual union. 57% of Americans are in favor of doctor-assisted suicide, of euthanasia. 36% of Americans think that pornography is morally acceptable. Now that's a really interesting number because the number is actually around 60% of people who regularly watch pornography. 36% say it's morally acceptable. 60% actually watch it. The point of this article, the point this article is trying to make is that these are all unprecedented numbers. America has never been more immoral than they are today. Right now. In fact, the article goes on to say, of the 19 issues included in this year's poll, no issues show meaningful change toward more traditionally conservative positions compared with when Gallup first measured them. America has never been more depraved, more immoral than we are today. So what are you going to do about it? starts with not participating. But also, please pray. Pray on behalf of our culture.
And remember that great blessings have been given to depraved, wretched, unregenerate people because of the presence of God's people among them. Think about it. Why didn't the ship that Paul was on, which was shipwrecked, why didn't everybody on board die? They should have, but they didn't. Why not? Because Paul was on board. And God still had plans for Paul. Later in Genesis, we'll see why Potiphar prospered. We read in Genesis 39.5, From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Why did he prosper? Because he had one of God's people in his house. Even Sodom and Gomorrah would have been spared if only ten righteous people could be found in the cities, in two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And this forces us to ask a very, very important question. If Abraham had made this plea on behalf of Seattle, would you be among the ten? Would you be among the ten? Would you be counted as one of the righteous Do your actions, does the fruit of your life bear evidence to a difference that God has made in your life? And of course, we know that the Lord was able to say yes to these things because He knew there weren't ten righteous people there. So it's not that Abraham is negotiating with God or or, or changing God's plans at all. No, God was able to give him straight answers and, and to still go and judge those cities because there were not ten righteous among them. But at the same time, he doesn't allow the righteous and the wicked to suffer the same fate. He rescues the righteous from out among them. God did destroy the guilty, but not before removing the righteous from their midst. This passage, friends, is designed to be a reminder to every single one of us that the day of God's righteous, holy judgment is coming. So if you have never repented and placed saving faith in Christ, this passage is a sobering reminder to you that your sins cry out to the Lord guilty, condemned, Worthy of judgment. If you support the immorality of our culture, if you support the way of living, the ways that our culture is is going further and further away from God at unprecedented levels, this passage is designed to be a sobering reminder to you that righteousness matters. Now there are two types of righteousness. There's a righteousness that you have before God. And there's a righteousness that you have before men. And there's an overlap. Because you can be a really moral person and yet be unrighteous before God. But we're talking about both. We're talking about the area of overlap where you are in Christ by faith. And because you are in Christ, you are declared righteous, not because of your righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed to you. And that will result in practical righteousness. That is, righteous deeds, good acts will follow from your salvation, from your right standing, from your new nature that you have in Christ Jesus. The day that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment started off 
like any other old day. And if you had been there, and if you had gone to somebody in the city and said, hey buddy, how you doing today? They would have said, I'm doing just great. The stock market is up. I am richer than I've ever been. My kids are strong and healthy. I've got a beautiful wife. We're not at war with the nations around us. Life is great. Things couldn't be better. And yet that would be the day that God's justice would be delivered. That would be the day that His holy wrath would be poured out upon them. God's judgment always comes at a time when people aren't expecting it, but at the same time, it never comes without warnings. This passage is a warning. This passage is a reminder of how serious God's judgment is. It's here so that we won't be lulled into some type of moral complacency or to be so foolish that to think that because God's judgment hasn't come yet, because God has let the culture go as far away from God as it has, it must mean that God is either okay with it or that God's not going to do anything about it even if He is upset about it. No, it is coming. It might be delayed, but don't be so foolish as to think that it's not coming. The sins of our culture are crying out to God louder than they ever have in the history of our nation. And God isn't going to put off judgment forever, indefinitely. God doesn't overlook sin. He's not uncaring about sin. God will judge all sin. Every sin will be punished. And the only hope of escaping eternal judgment is revealed at the cross. Where God's justice, His wrath, and His mercy all converge. And they're all demonstrated clearly. Because your sin is either upon you if you continue to reject Christ and continue in your sinful rebellion, or your sin is upon Christ. And He paid the price in full as your substitute in your place. God commands you to turn from your sin today and to believe in Jesus Christ. To turn from all self-effort, self-righteousness, and to believe that Jesus is the only way that you will be made right with God. He's the only mediator between God and man. And God commands you to come to the cross and to receive mercy by believing in Christ. That doesn't mean just saying a prayer and going on with life and sinning freely, thinking, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. No, it is a lifelong journey that you're starting when you receive Christ. When Christ comes to a person, He changes their nature. He changes their desires. He changes their affections. And if you say, the wickedness of the culture, I, I don't know how to turn from it. I don't know how to be different. It needs to be the power of God within you, changing you. And if you've done that, if you've put your, your trust in Jesus, praise the Lord. But remember that you've been called to be the salt of the earth. You've been called, you've been appointed from eternity to be a light on a hill that cannot be hidden by the darkness of the culture.
And part of being salt, part of being light, includes intercessory prayer on behalf of the culture. Pray for the people of our nation, but also pray for the leaders of our nation. Pray that God would show mercy to those around us who are lost. Not for our sake, but for God's sake. Pray above all that God would be glorified in turning our culture around. In bringing many, many who are currently lost to glory through faith in Christ. Pray that for the glory of God, many who are currently being held captive by Satan would be set free through faith in Christ. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. There's a story of a Civil War general who was wounded twice in combat and his wounds were so severe that they did to his arm what they did to a lot of people who had injuries in their uh, extremities at the time. They would amputate. So he had his right arm amputated. So he could no longer go out into battle because it was his right arm and that was the arm that he would hold his gun and his sword with and all those things. So the military stationed him in Fort Columbus on Governor's Island in New York. And he would regularly take walks up and down Broadway, which of course is a busy, busy street today. It was busy you know, back then too. But as he would be walking down this street, people would be rushing this way and that way. And a lot of times his right arm, his right shoulder would be hit and jostled, which caused him incredible pain throughout his body. And he resolved, in order to become at peace with it. In order to avoid becoming bitter about it, he determined that every time somebody bumped into him and hurt him, jostled him, he would pray for that person. In a spiritual sense, the culture does the same to us. It jostles us. It pains us. If you're pained by the actions, by by the immorality of the culture, as you should be, resolve to pray for them. Resolve to pray. Not for God to execute vengeance or wrath upon them, but for God's grace to open the eyes of their hearts that they too may behold the grace of God displayed at the cross in the Savior. And that God would grant them repentance and faith to believe in Christ. May He grant us the boldness that's required to not conform to the culture, to refuse to stand with the culture, to be different, to be set apart, to be righteous not only in our standing before God, but in our standing before men. But may He also grant us the tenderness and the brokenheartedness to pray for the culture with loving persistence for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are but dust and ashes. And we have no right in and of ourselves to approach you and to have your ear. And so we thank you, Lord, for the grace that you give us 
in listening to us. None of us would be worthy of even approaching you were it not for your grace. And so we thank you, God, for lending us your ear as we pray to you. And as we pray to you, Lord, we confess our own sins to you in the silence of our hearts. And we ask, God, that you would purge those sins from our lives. We ask that you would continue to change our desires and our affections and the things that we love so that we might love what you love and hate what you hate. Father, we thank you for the immense privilege of being able to pray to you on behalf of the culture. And so, Lord, we first and foremost bring those who are closest to you, or to us, uh, before you in our hearts, and we ask, Lord, that you would let us be salt, let us be light in the darkness. But we also pray, Lord, for the leaders of our country, and we ask, God, that you would give them wisdom. We ask, Lord, that you would grant them repentance, that you would give them faith to believe in Christ, and we pray that they would have the courage to take a stand where a stand needs to be taken. Oh God, we pray for mercy for our culture, not because of who we are, but because of how good you are. God, we do pray that you would be glorified through the lives of your people, living holy and righteous lives in the midst of a dark and depraved culture. Not for our glory, but for your glory. That you would be lifted up. That Jesus Christ would be magnified and exalted and glorified. So thank you, Lord, for hearing us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your Son to redeem us, to rescue us from darkness, to open the eyes of our hearts that we may believe in Him. Thank you for your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.